Good morning, everyone. It is nice to uh, be here out of captivity. Like uh, many of you, I've spent the past week uh, contemplating the inside of the house. And yes, my wife is still at home. Good morning, darling. Uh, contemplating the inside of the house for yet a couple more days. I received my clearance letter yesterday and at one minute to midnight, I'm a, a free man as of last night. Uh, we do thank those of you who've been praying for Anne and I through our journey. Uh, it does mean a lot to us and really does help us to uh, cope, get through and look to the end game, as it were. Uh, it's my privilege to welcome you back to the book of Ecclesiastes again as we continue our Honesty with Hope series. This is the eight uh, sessions we've had already now. This is now the second to last stroll under the sun with Uncle Sol, as it were. Uh, I say that affectionately because uh, I think as I've come to enjoy this letter, this book, this portion of the Word of God, I think it does read like um, words of comfort from an uncle. One of those larger-than-life, been-there, done-that sort of characters that you probably know someone like that. Back in the day, they would have identified themselves boldly with one of those, you know, been there, done that, bought the T-shirt uh, statements. But uh, in Solomon's case, it was a matter of been there, done that, wrote the book. And that's fortunate for us because uh, I think even though this may look like a dusty old letter from a crusty old uncle, it still speaks to us today. Ecclesiastes uh, is indeed a strange name for an uncle, uh, odd title for a book, but uh, as you've been with us through our journey, you would know that it simply means a preacher, a speaker before an assembly. And as our various preachers have led us through these eight messages, discerning listeners would have noticed that there's one theme that Solomon keeps coming back to. And I don't mean the vanity, the, the meaningless, the futility that we were introduced to early on. That was just to get our attention, something that we can all relate to. But it seems to me Solomon's more interested in the antidote to all that, which is wisdom. And so he's going to help us consider wisdom. What is it? What does it look like? What's the value of wisdom? What doesn't it look like? And so in today, uh, we're going from chapter 9, verse 13, as Kerry read, all the way through to chapter 11 and verse 6, as Solomon ranges far and wide to give us his been there, done that, insights on wisdom. And I think his bottom line for us is that we don't have to learn everything the hard way. Someone's well said that a wise man learns from experience, but a wiser man learns from somebody else's experience. Experience is a good school, but the fees are high, and apparently the colours are black and blue. So what should you expect from today's passage? We're not plumbing the depths this morning of deep theological truths or digging out uh, doctrinal detail. There's no real overt evangelistic thrust. 
But this is definitely a rubber-meets-the-road sort of section where we can take on board what I think they call today life hacks, some practical life workarounds where we learn to walk quietly and humbly with our God and problem-prevent as much as problem-solve by cultivating wisdom. I wasn't sure whether cultivate was the right word to capture where we're going today. I think cultivate kind of comes up with these definitions of digging up paddocks and gardens ready for sowing seeds. But then I did find something more helpful in vocabulary.com where they share with us that to cultivate is to nurture and help grow. Farmers cultivate crops. Fundraising professionals cultivate donors. And uh, celebrities cultivate their images. When you cultivate something, you work to make it better. Originally, the word referred only to crops that required tilling, but the meaning has widened. No matter what is being cultivated, the word implies a level of care that is reminiscent of gardening. Sometimes friendships come naturally, and sometimes you have to cultivate them. To cultivate anything requires an attention to detail, an understanding of what is being cultivated, and a lot of patience. Make no mistake, that is serious effort, but this is one of God's seriously effective weapons and tools. So firstly, cultivate wisdom. It's always the best way forward. And right off the bat, that's what Solomon says to us with his been there, done that, seen that perspective in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 from verse 13. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Be wise, even though there's no guarantee your wisdom will be appreciated or remembered. And this was nothing new to Solomon. He opened his book back in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 11 with the uh, somewhat hopeless and meaningless uh, observation. Verse 11, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. He knew what he was getting himself in for. And now in chapter 9, verse 14, he relates to us a frustrating but probably real-life example that he presumably observed in his own time. It seems to have been another one of those David versus Goliath matchups. This time in verse 14, there's a small David-sized city and it's attacked by a great Goliath-sized kingdom. Funny, nothing's changed. Just uh, listen to the news and it's still David versus Goliath. But fortunately, in this instance, somehow the wisdom of a poor wise man somehow saves the day, delivers his city from attack and the great king is sent packing. May it ever be so. But note the disappointing postscript there in verse 15, second part. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. And so Solomon gives us a great reality check for those seeking to cultivate wisdom. Verse 17, 
Words of the wise, spoken quietly, should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Isn't it a fact that oftentimes the loudest voice is just window dressing or a smokescreen for the weakest argument or plan? Is it not true, parents, that you soon learn that the most vocal and loudly weeping child is not necessarily the innocent party or the rightful possessor of whatever it is that the kids are arguing over. I remember reading from one of the great preachers of the past, probably Spurgeon. He relates how a certain fellow preacher had written a little note to himself in the margin of his preaching manuscript, speak louder here, point a little weak. Well, whether we're fulfilling our role as a leader or as a follower, or dare I say, even, or maybe especially as a discerning voter. I think there's a couple of practical takeaways for us from these opening verses. We should recognise wisdom and wise counsel for what it is, regardless of the importance or status or advertising budget of the source. And our commitment to seeking to do the right thing is always the best way forward, always the wisest course of action even though we may not be remembered for it, even though the majority may not agree or recognise the straight and narrow path that lies ahead. So Solomon says, remember number one signpost on the road less travelled, cultivate wisdom, it's always the best way forward. And his second signpost follows immediately on in uh, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 10. Cultivate wisdom, but be diligent in guarding it. Solomon says, be wise, guard your wisdom from the folly of frivolity. Dead flies, he says in verse 1, putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odour. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honour. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he is a fool. Again, if you've been following Solomon's narrative with us, you might recognise that here again in verse 1 of chapter 10, he's reverting to an analogy he introduced back in chapter 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. Wisdom is not invincible. Wisdom can be overcome. Wisdom can be negated, can be discounted, disregarded, destroyed by distractions. The delicious aroma of the perfumer's ointment can be quickly soiled and ruined by pesky flies as they drop, drown, die and decay in the treasured, highly valuable ointment. So too wisdom in its preciousness, is also vulnerable and potentially very fragile. That solid reputation, that good public testimony, those wise leadership skills, these all take time to build up, to be tested, to be proven amongst our peers. 
And if we want to maintain our ministry as wise counsellors, we have to realise the potential pitfalls and dangers of even an unguarded moment of indiscretion or an ill-considered outburst of over-the-top frivolity. Guarded wisdom recognises the danger trying to be all things to all men. Guarded wisdom understands the long-term damage that can be done to our credibility by joining in ungodly shenanigans. If we have to choose, and, and we will, between being accepted as one of the boys or girls or being available as one of the men or women that God can use to work through, then we do well to choose thoughtfully and wisely and keep ourselves available as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl that God can call on, that God can count on. And that's the concept Solomon's trying to underline for us here in verse 2. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Now, I know that image isn't as strong for us nowadays, but in biblical times, and more so in Eastern cultures even today, the right hand is the hand of honour and strength. For a start, it's the hand you eat with. It's the hand you hold your sword with back in the day. Whereas the left hand is recognised as the weaker hand and is reserved for other less honourable tasks. Only a careless character would neglect to give his or her heart the honour and care and pride of place that's reserved for the right hand. Solomon continues highlighting the folly of the foolishly immoral and godless character here in verse 3 of chapter 10. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he is a fool. Solomon's, Solomon sorry, is no doubt recalling his own words back in the book of Proverbs, his classic summary in Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 28. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. And maybe Solomon's calling to mind stories he'd heard from his father David, who didn't suffer fools gladly. As David's soon-to-be wife, Abigail, relates to her about-to-become former husband, Nabal, in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 25. She says to David, Please, David, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. Abigail's husband, you might remember, had foolishly and dangerously refused to help David's men when they asked for assistance when they were on the run from jealous King Saul. She says, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. No prizes for guessing that Nabal means literally fool. And in this case, it cost this man his life. Note to parents, be careful what you name your children. Be careful what you call your children. So what should we take to heart so far? We cultivate wisdom because it's always the best way forward. We cultivate wisdom and we guard it. And now at our third Solomonic signpost, we come to a section that has particular reference and relevance to rulers and leaders 
And obviously Solomon was the man qualified to speak to that. Cultivate wisdom, he says thirdly, even when those around you ignore and abuse it. So we'll pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 10. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offences. There is an evil I have seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, while the rich sit in a lowly place. I've seen servants on horses, while princes walk on the ground like servants. To put it another way, be wise even or maybe especially when those in authority seem to lack wisdom. Of course, in his context, Solomon's ruler would have meant literally the kings and the princes, the governors, other leaders in positions of authority. In our post-industrial revolution context, we would probably have to add in their bosses and managers and supervisors and team leaders, maybe even coaches, as those who are effectively rulers over some sphere of our lives. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, Solomon says, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offences. Now, it's possible Solomon is, from a literary perspective, harking back to his observation advice from verse 1. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odour. Maybe, uh, maybe your previously stellar reputation has been spoiled by your unwise behaviour. And deservedly or otherwise, the powers above you are not amused and you hear the sound of rattling sabres or you sense the rising beat of the death march drums. Solomon says, don't jump ship prematurely. Don't be a runaway from the things that need to be faced. Don't run away from open and honest conversations that need to take place. Facts need to be checked. Feelings need to be acknowledged. Grievances need to be aired. Responsibilities need to be accepted. Once tempers have cooled, circumstances have been explained, conciliation can calm troubled waters. As Joseph encouraged Pharaoh's imprisoned cupbearer in Genesis chapter 40 and verse 13, now within three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. Just a willingness to conciliate, to smoke a peace pipe, figuratively of course, is a powerful and effective evidence of a wise character and should be a great Christian trademark as it points so clearly to the heart of our God who made peace with us through the mediation of his own son. Could it be that we become known and get sought out as fence menders, as bridge builders, doing unto others, reconciling with others, wherever we find ourselves, as God, in his mercy, has done for us through his son. It's something we should be good at. Solomon has some more advice for rulers, for leaders, and he draws on his own personal experience again as we move on and tells us next in this section what he's seen under the sun 
when errors of judgment lead to the appointment of inappropriate leaders. There is an evil, verse 5, I have seen under the sun, as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, while the rich sit in a lowly place. I've seen servants on horses, while princes walk on the ground like servants. My mind immediately went to the scenario which was some 600 years ahead in Solomon's time, but to the book of Esther, King Xerxes, Hasuerus, as you will, and, uh, and good old wicked Haman, who fancied himself as one who should be riding on a horse and having someone lead him through the streets, declaring what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honour. But as we know in the book of Esther, God will not be mocked. And so instead, it's a lowly Uncle Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who gets to ride on the horse, and deservedly so, Haman gets to read him, uh, lead him through the streets, declaring what shall be done for the man whom the king seeks to honour. But Solomon had his own reasons to be sad, as he would have known how his own wise counsel wasn't heeded by his own sons. 1 Kings in chapter 12 relates how Solomon's son Rehoboam rejected his father's advice and advisers, and this eventually led to the dividing of Solomon's kingdom. Rehoboam didn't listen to his father's wise and experienced elders, but followed the tough-talking advice of his younger friends. Rehoboam made the elders walk and unwisely put the young men on the horses by esteeming their advice. I love Pastor Warren Wearsby's great leadership advice as he summarises the moral of this story. He says, The best rulers and leaders are men and women who are tough-minded but tender-hearted, who put the best people on the horses and don't apologise for it. Good leadership advice. So, from verse 8 now through to virtually verse 20, I have to admit this next section had me scratching my head for quite some time. I think the first impression you get is that Solomon is just throwing in some random, unconnected proverb, you know, just for good measure, a sort of revisiting of his habit of collecting proverbs in the book of Proverbs. But the more I read these proverbs, the more convinced I am that this is Solomon, the great writer, the man on a mission, the man who is able to poetically weave in these threads that aren't immediately apparent to us when we just read it casually. So now from verse uh, 8 through 15 in chapter 10, it seems that he's gathering some momentum as he illustrates and repeatedly drives home the grave consequences of his observation we just noted here in verse 5. An evil I have seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. And the principle he's preaching is simply this. Actions have consequences. Think before you act. Actions or lack of actions have consequences. Here we go. Verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits wood may be endangered by it. 
If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. Like the biblical proverbs, these aren't promises. Not always going to fall in the hole. But chances are, you dig yourself a big hole, either you or someone else is going to fall into it. You work in a quarry long enough, you're going to see a landslide. And any of us who have chopped wood will know that you're eventually going to get splinters by chopping the wood, or worse. So he, he, he gets some momentum going here, and so now he, he's going to keep that momentum going in verses 11 through 15. As he takes a few swings at his favourite punching bag, the fool, the person lacking judgment in mind and mouth and morals. A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labour of fools wearies them, for they don't even know how to go to the city. And while he's on a literary roll, Solomon returns to the evils and excesses of the unwise leaders he introduced to us back in verses 5 through 7. The guys that don't belong on the horses. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. There's a great line. Money answers everything. It's a great discussion starter. Just try throwing that out at the lunchtime table today and watch the sparks and opinions fly. But I think in the context, I think he's just answering the dilemma of the immediate context here. Because of laziness, the building decay, uh, decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. And it is good to have a little money to throw around when that's the case. But before he, uh, he leaves his leaders and rulers section, Solomon has a final word for us here in verse 20. For those of us who find ourselves under authority, subject to leaders. And that's probably all of us in some context or other. And here again, this is another example of the reap what you sow principle that's been bubbling through this whole section. Verse 20, do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. As the famous street sign, I think it's in New York, says, don't even think about parking here. Solomon says, don't even think about bad-mouthing your leaders. And that's a principle we do well to apply with a very broad brush. Think before we act. Think before we speak. Before we whisper. Before we text before we email, before we phone, before we hit post or publish, before we hit send. I'm pretty sure this verse 
is the origin of the well-known response you get when you wonder how someone knows something and they say, oh, a little bird told me. And when we warn someone not to speak too loudly because the walls have ears. Actions, words, whispers, messages have consequences. And especially in our interconnected and tangled worldwide web and now multiverse, words have a very nasty habit of leaking and spreading at twice the speed of gossip, often with disastrous and or embarrassing results. If you're not happy to have it broadcast, then keep it to yourself. You really do reap what you sow. Wisdom is always the best way forward, Solomon says. Be diligent in guarding it. Continue to cultivate it even when those around us and over us are ignoring or abusing it. And to conclude, Solomon stays very practical in our remaining verses, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, that we might summarise as, fourthly, cultivate wisdom by investing our energies and assets widely and generously. And Solomon kicks off chapter 11 with this great and very memorable poetical flourish that's almost as hard to analyse as it is to forget. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. I always conjure up this vision of the lotus blossoms and the candles kind of floating out on the waters here and, I don't know, maybe they come back again, but that's usually as far as I get. But Solomon says, no, cast your bread upon the waters. Well, we don't have to get bogged down in, in trying to guess whether Solomon was referring, probably as he was in his day, to the merchant ships that he's sending out on the seven seas, full of grain, going to foreign countries and hopefully earning top dollars as they return as his investments. Maybe he was referring to the farmers going through their uh, fields, throwing the seed corn out onto the flooded paddy fields, trying to ensure a good harvest. Cast your bread upon the waters. Well, the reason I say we don't have to worry about it is because Scripture is such a gem and so brilliant at being its own interpreter. And, and here is a classic case of Hebrew parallelism. You just look to the next verse to give you the meaning of the prior one. And there it is, verse 2. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. So the principle of being kind and wise by feeding or otherwise supplying seven or eight servants it's just an image encouraging us to hedge our bets and receive a return of loyalty and help should the time come and maybe even profit by multiplying and diversifying our resources. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. I don't think it was Solomon that said that, but that's effectively what he's getting at here. And he, he says effectively, don't just take my word for it, Surely the laws of nature under the sun demand that generosity and diversity be underwriting everything we do if we want to have any hope of success. 
So in verse 3, he reminds us that, if nothing else, the laws of nature are reliable and consistent. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. If a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. That doesn't mean we have excuses. There's no shortage of excuses for those who are afraid to divest themselves of their energies and their investments. There's no shortage of excuses for those who are afraid to stand up and be counted, afraid to stretch or even exercise their faith and invest their energies and their assets, or as Jesus would have it, their talents. Verse 4, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Isn't that the truth? This is the great principle to wrap up with because I think all of us in some way want to do the best thing. We want to do the right thing. Maybe even the perfect thing. Solomon says, just do it. He didn't say it in so many words, but that's effectively what he's saying. Invest generously, widely. Do it. Start it. If you're waiting for the perfect time or place to start laying a foundation for an authentic Christian life by committing to a daily habit of reading from the Bible, that perfect time, that perfect place is never going to come. So we should commit and we should start anyway. If we're waiting to find the perfect church before we join, we're never going to join. I think it was the actor Woody Allen who's famous for at least being honest when he said he'd never join a church that would have someone like him for a member. If we're waiting for the perfect ministry opportunity before we roll up our spiritual sleeves to serve God, we're never going to get started because there will always be some discomfort, some disappointments attached to genuine service opportunities, especially if there are people involved. If we're waiting for the perfect job, the perfect partner, the perfect place to live, the perfect time to have children, the perfect time to move on because we don't seem to be getting what we want. Solomon reminds us how little we know and how little we control and to commit ourselves to the God who rules from above his creation. And we do that by cultivating wisdom. In this case, specifically being diligent, generous and diverse in our efforts under the sun. Verse 5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. And wow, what an amazing climax to Uncle Solomon's whole letter up to this point. I feel like proclaiming, well, let the record show. Solomon, the glass half-empty guy, if ever there was one, who in spite of having everything, having done anything that anyone could ever want to do, 
and yet who's been miserably lamenting the vain woes of life under the sun for the past 11 chapters, finally gives us a glimpse of his alter ego, the glass half full guy, who can optimistically conceive of not just one, but maybe, just maybe, both of his investments could prosper. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let the record show. And be encouraged. If you ask a rich man what he wants, he'll answer, to get richer. If you ask a strong man what he wants, he'll answer, to get even stronger. Ask a wise man what he wants, he'll answer, if he truly is wise, he'll want to get wiser. Solomon says to us, cultivate wisdom. Guard wisdom. Encourage wisdom. Exercise wisdom. God has made sure we have all we need to navigate this life under the sun. And the challenges of the hard hills and the dark valleys are meant to drive us to search for and grasp hold of the reward of walking closely with our God. We can thank him for those who've gone before us, who've been there, done this, done that, and especially for Solomon, who didn't settle for the T-shirt, for posting a few selfies, but wrote us this classic and timeless book that we've been privileged to share a good slice of together today. So I trust as we go out from here that God will continue to use it to encourage us, enable us to walk wisely with him in the week ahead and in the days that remain until he returns or otherwise takes us to be with him. Let's pray to that end. Father, we do come to you and we do thank you as the good God who really does know it all. You know us, you knew Solomon, all of the characters that you've embedded here in the Bible, still speaking to us, still showing us their weakness, their wisdom, their strengths. Lord, would you help us to know the beginning of wisdom as we fear you, yes, rightfully fear you, respect you, and as we follow your Son. We thank you that you haven't left us without an example of pure wisdom, of pure truth, of pure love. And we pray that as we go from here, as we interact with one another, as we bless one another, that you would be very real and a part of what we're doing, that we would know that you are with us, that you've walked with us, and so we commit ourselves, one another, to you again and again. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.